the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Raising godly children requires our time investment, and that time investment starts when they are born. Don't waste those moments if you do have because you're not promised more. I know that none of my kids are promised health. I know that none of them are promised that everything will be perfect. I know that anything could happen. So make the most of the moments you do have. If Jochebed had looked left and right, all she would have seen is death. If she had looked at herself, all she'd see was inability and impossibility. I can't do this anymore. But instead, she and Abraham, they laid fear aside and they looked up. They stepped out in faith by committing him to God's care. And then God did beyond anything she could have imagined. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join senior pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. Last time in Exodus chapter 2, we saw two Israelite parents, Yocheved and Amram, go against the rule of the Egyptian pharaoh to save their baby. Yocheved put the baby into a box and placed him in the river to float to safety, trusting God would save the baby. This is the story of Moses. We pick up with Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 2, verse 6. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And then my Bible has a colon there. The colon afterward indicates an indefinite period of time takes place. We don't know how long she looked at the baby. I can't imagine that's what she expected to see. But she's looking, and she's like, there's a baby in here. What does this mean? What sign is this? She may have even just stared at the baby and thought, this is it. This is my sign. Some have suggested that's pretty much what prompted her to become the child's mother, to become Moses' mother, because, well, if the Nile blessed you with a kid, you don't give it back. But either way, the Bible tells us the real reason is that she was moved with compassion. For it says, the baby started to cry. (laughs) When she saw the child, behold, the baby wept. Now, people say there isn't a difference between men and women. To that I say, you need to take a science class. But beyond the obvious differences between men and women on the outside, we are wired very differently on the inside too. When a child cries because I like kids, there's a sense of compassion in my heart. Oh, what's going on? Unless it goes on for a long time and then I'm like, somebody take care of that. Now, when one of my children cries and he has, or she has a good reason for crying, my heart is moved. When they're crying from a bad attitude, I'm not moved at all. There's no internal thing inside of me that goes, aw. I look at that and I'm like, what is your problem? You know, and, and, and I do that. You know, I, I have three boys and, and my first two boys, you know, we, we would do that. They started crying. No, 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 no. There's no crying. We're talking about something. And, and, and okay, okay, we'll talk. Then I had a baby girl. We can go from zero to 90 in less than a second. So what's wrong with you? I'm like, whoa, whoa, time out. I I haven't even had a chance to get prepared for all these emotions. The same is not true for a woman, though, especially a mother. 
The sound of a child crying, particularly an infant, affects a hormone in a woman called oxy... It's either tocin or tocin. I think it's tocin. Also known as the cuddle hormone. It's count surges following childbirth. And here's how it affects a woman. It affects a woman by turning up the volume of social information processed in her brain. So a child crying in another room feels like it's right next to you. And there's this surge inside of you that I must do something. I must help crying baby. I can't tell you how many times we've been in a restaurant and there's a child crying somewhere near and it's going on and on. I'm just thinking, oh man, I, we need to finish eating and go. You know, and Beth's just going, you know, you know, she's, she's just, you know, you, you get see she's on the edge of her seat. Someone help the child, you know? And I, I'm thinking, you know, I, I heard him, man. He had an attitude, you know? What's wrong with you? Why do you feel bad for him? You know, he's getting what he deserved. So it is very possible that God used the crying baby to affect her emotionally by bringing out those nurturing elements that God has placed within a woman. Uh, But whatever the influences were, the Bible is clear that she made a choice upon seeing him cry. For it says she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, the word compassion here, it means to show mercy, but specifically it means to spare That she knew this child was slated for execution is clear by her declaration of who he was, his heritage. He's a Hebrew child. And she makes a choice to spare him. She had pity upon him, and she chose to spare him. Now, we know precious little about this woman, very little. Acts 7.21 says she raised him as her own son, but Acts 7.22 shows that raising him also included a full Egyptian education, which meant that would have included their pagan religious beliefs and practices. We have no indication that she was a believer in Jehovah. Hebrews 11.24 tells us that there came a time when Moses had to make a choice between being her son or joining his people. And he chose his people, leaving her behind. So we have no indication that she ever espoused his beliefs. You know, I, I think in one of the movies she ends up coming with him or something. I don't know, you know, this silly stuff. However her life ended up in regards to faith, we don't know. But she made the right choice here by showing mercy. There are times in our lives when God brings someone into our life that needs to be shown mercy. And and is that a choice you need to make tonight? You know, is there someone God has brought into your life right now that needs to be shown mercy? Other people have written off, or maybe they've just wronged other people and they've deserved what they've gotten in that sense of lack of trust and lack of involvement. And God's calling you to be merciful to them, to saying, I want you to reach out to them. No, they don't deserve it but I want you to spare them that. I want you to pity them and show them my love. You know, Matthew 5, 7 says, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. I don't know about you, but I need a lot of mercy. (laughs) I need a lot of mercy, so I try to show a lot of mercy. Well, it goes on. It says, verse 7, then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, shall I go and call to you a nurse of the Hebrew women? that she may nurse the child for you? You don't know if this was the pre-planned response, if things went exactly as they hoped, like, hey, if somebody picks him up, and whatever, suggest, you know, I, I know somebody who can take care of the baby since you didn't have the baby, but, you know, perhaps God just put the exact words in her heart at that moment. Maybe she saw Pharaoh's daughter looking at Moses and came up with the idea herself. Either way, it's one of the most amazing things in history that's been said by a six-year-old. The idea of a nurse means a wet nurse. 
Back in that day, there was no such thing as baby formula. You know, you did not go to the local Egyptian Walmart and pick up some Pedialyte or whatever it is that is used today. Since Pharaoh's daughter didn't birth the child, she could not personally feed him. And there would have been, obviously, amongst the Hebrews, an abundance of wet nurses uh, with all the murdered babies. So there were numerous women who could have nursed a child but, couldn't, but didn't have one to nurse because their child had been executed. That being said, though, I have to think that Pharaoh's daughter realized what was going on. The appearance of the box, now the appearance of a little girl, and who suggests, I know some, I could probably find somebody, you know. And, and, and this even more marvels me, her compassion, because she could have thought, you know, I don't know about you, like, I don't like being set up. Like when I find out somebody set me up or trapped me or put me in a spot, like, oh, now I'm stuck. I got, I got to do this. I don't like that. So, I mean, she could have reacted that way. She could have done that, but whether she figured this out or not, she agrees to her sister's, to his sister's suggestion, for she's Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, go. And so she went and called the child's mother, Jochebed. And then Jochebed now is standing before Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. And the woman, Jochebed, took the child and nursed it. Now I want you to back up for just a moment and put yourself in Jochebed's shoes. Can you imagine what it was like for Jochebed to put her little boy in that box and release him to the river? I'm not a mommy, and that, that bothers me. You know, I still remember the first time we like, let our kid go somewhere without us. You know, it was like, you know, I think when Joel hit like 17, we let him go somewhere. No, I'm just kidding. You know, it's like, you know, you know, it's little things, you know, you know, you know, is he crossing the street okay? You know, you know, you get in the car okay? You know, he doesn't like to sit like that, you know. And your little tiny three-month-old baby and you've put him in a box and you've walked away. Well, can you imagine what it was like to stand before Pharaoh's daughter and see your little boy in that powerful woman's arms alive? You know, all of that pain was now replaced by relief. But then look at what happens. Look at what God does. Pharaoh's holding that boy, and she says, take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. How those words must have turned a relief, but, but still a bitter relief, into miraculous joy. Not only would her son live, but she would raise him until he was weaned. And in Egyptian and Hebrew culture, that would usually be to about three or four years old. And not only that, but you're going to get paid for doing so. If Jochebed had looked left and right, all she would have seen is death. If she had looked at herself, all she'd see was inability and impossibility. I can't do this anymore. But instead, she and Abraham, they laid fear aside and they looked up and they stepped out in faith by committing him to God's care and then God did beyond anything she could have imagined. He did exceedingly abundantly, what? Above all they could ask or think, like the scripture says, huh? God does amazing things. Guys, there will always be not always in our life, but all of us are going to go through distressing circumstances that seem to hem us in with no way out. And it's going to be easy in those moments to look at ourselves in despair or or think that if we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps strong enough and handle this on our own and take matters in our own hands, we can beat this. But I want to encourage you, don't forget to look up to the omnipotent God who has a plan and who loves you dearly. Don't forget to do that. Well, The Bible says that she took him. The woman took the child and nursed it. And then it says the child grew. And so she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
She called his name Moses, and she said, because I drew him out of the water. Now, three or four years surely wasn't the 12 to 15 years in that culture that a mother would hope to have with her child. You became a man, you know, bar mitzvah, of course, you know, in Jewish culture, you turn 13, you're considered a man. And, and, and in that culture, you, you, then this kind of when dad started giving you stuff to do and letting you be responsible. And then by the time you hit 15, you, you kind of had your own, you'd made your own way. And now you were established and you, you kind of started to form your own life and, and become an adult and act like one. So three to four years surely wasn't the 12 to 15 years a mom would hope to have with her, her child. So I'm sure this second parting was bittersweet. Her son would not just live, he would live a free life, wouldn't be a slave like them, but yet it wouldn't be with her. But you know, for Jochebed, the prospects of seeing her child another day were dead the moment she put him in that river. And I want to encourage you with something as it concerns your kids. Life is precious. Time with our children is precious. Don't waste those moments if you do have because you're not promised more. I know that none of my kids are promised health. I know that none of them are promised that everything will be perfect. I know that anything could happen. So make the most of the moments you do have. Jochebed brings her to Pharaoh, and it says here that she became, or he became her son, Pharaoh's daughter's son. Now, Hebrews 11 describes something that we really don't see anywhere else in the Scripture. In 24 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith... Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect, was looking for the recompense of the reward. He was looking for the the reward that God would bring, not not all the riches that Egypt promised him because of his royal connection uh, through Pharaoh's daughter. So, It says here that Moses made a choice to be identified when he became of age to his own people and not Pharaoh's daughter. Now, the coming of age means he did this long before he turned 40 and killed the Egyptian. We know that's what happens next. He goes out when he's 40 years old to see his people. He finds the Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews. He kills the Egyptian and, and supposing that his own people would think and know that he was their, you know, redeemer. So that's when he's 40. But here it says that by faith, when he came of age, he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. Now, coming of age for an Egyptian boy was the mid-teen years, from 15 to 18. This means that Moses came into a saving relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob very early on. And the only way I can see that happening is if Amram and Jochebed used those three to four years to instill instill these truths in him. It's interesting, you know, because a recent study, lots of studies have been done why 20 to 30-somethings are leaving the church. And a recent study found some compelling information about why 20 to 30-somethings are leaving the church. It is not because they're losing their faith in college. In fact, what they have found in most cases These young people were lost prior to the age of 10. They're simply not old enough until they get to high school, college, or career age to justify their reasons for not believing. Why do you bring this up, Will? Well, Moses became Pharaoh's daughter's son in every way at the young age of three or four. Turn to Acts 7 with me, and let's get the flip side. We 
see that they had an influence on him for three to four years. Let's look at the influence that was on him for the next decade or dozen years of his life. Acts chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. And verse 20, we'll read, read that as well. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house for three months. And when he was cast out or put on the river, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and became mighty in words and in deeds. That is the flip side of his life after he was weaned. Moses did not live the majority of his childhood saturated in truth or faith-filled environments. He was raised by a pagan woman. He was schooled in the most pagan of school systems. He was exposed to all sorts of lies and falsehoods, maybe even demonic power or miracles, as he attended the very famous and renowned occultic, religious, and governed proceedings that took place in Egyptian pagan temples. Like Daniel, the only thing that Moses had going for him in this pagan environment was whatever truth was instilled in him at a very young age. You say, well, what's your point? Here's my point. Your children are never too young to begin reading the Bible to them. They are never too young to ask them spiritual questions. They are never too young to have boundaries or godly discipline. I remember when I brought Joel home, one of the first things I did is I sat in my chair and I opened my Bible, I started reading Genesis. Now, I wish I could say I was a great spiritual dad and I kept up with it every day, but that's not true. But that was something that we tried to instill in our kids from birth, that the word of God is important, that there are truths that you need to learn and understand. Malachi 2.15, you can look it up later, but it states that raising up a godly seed is one of the five purposes of marriage, one of the five principles of marriage. Raising godly children is part of our job as parents, as even just married people being together. It's part of marriage. It's part of married life. Now, raising godly children requires our time investment, and that time investment starts when they are born. Time to read and study the scriptures yourself so you can answer their questions or help them understand the main point of what they're reading. Time to pray and apply what I'm reading to the word to my life so then they can see it lived out practically. Time to read and pray with them. Time as they are learning to read and pray themselves. I remember the first time I sat down with one of the kids and I'm like, okay, now you're going to read because I wanted them to become comfortable reading their own Bible. That takes a long time to get through one verse when they're first starting to read. A lot of time. You know, and there's a part of you that wants to just be like, he wept, okay? He wept. <laughs> Time to have spiritual conversations about important topics. Decision-making. At Calvary Chapel Orlando, while we desire to impact your children here and to raise up the next generation in faith, if you expect your child's biblical, moral, and ethical education to be started or given by us, you're going to be severely disappointed by the results. Severely disappointed by the results. We get them for one, maybe two hours a week compared to the influence of your words and actions all week long. It is your responsibility to do these things. And you should start them as young as possible. 
You know, I always chuckle when my kids complain about stuff I ask them to do, or I'll, pro- you know, because, you know, you, with kids sometimes, especially as they get older, you got to pick your moments. Probably the best moment of a spiritual conversation is right, probably not right we're in the middle of beating Mario World 7.4 or whatever it is. That's probably not the best time to go, hey, what'd you learn in Sunday school this week? Because you're going to get, I don't remember. Ding, 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 ding. You're, you're not going to get that, okay? So I understand you got to pick your moments. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you go, well, now's the moment. I don't care what you're doing. And I've had those moments where you're, you're, you're talking to the kids and you're pulling information out of them and you can tell, I don't want to be doing this. I want to be doing something else. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> They'll survive. And they're going to remember a lot more than you think. And the time that you spend with them will be valuable to them as they get older. Well, it says that when she took him as her son, she called his name Moses. That's an Egyptian name, by the way. I'm fascinated. Moses never changed his name. Whatever name um, Jochebed and Amram had initially given to him, which they would have done that on his naming day, which would have been circumcision day when he was eight days old, that name is lost to us. We don't know his name. I mean, Hebrew tradition has a name, but we don't know if that's a fact. But he, he kept his Egyptian name, Moses, which means to be drawn out of the river. And that's, she says that because I drew him out of the river. Pharaoh's daughter might have thought that the Nile gave her this boy as a sign of favor, but the truth is this. As Acts says that Moses excelled in the learning of the Egyptians, he was mighty in power and word and deed. He was, people looked at him and thought, that guy's going to be a powerful man in Egypt someday. The truth is this, no matter how Moses excelled and lived up to his pagan name, that he was some blessed child that the river granted her, no matter how much he lived up to that pagan name, she wasn't raising another government official or high-ranking priest. She was raising the one who would rescue the Hebrews from Egypt's grasp. And somehow, Moses knew it. Somehow he knew it. Turn back over to Acts chapter 7, and verses 23 through 25. Now this is after the choice that he had broken with his mother. Probably for 20 years he'd been out of association with her, and yet still we don't know what Moses' role exactly was at this point. So it says here that when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed, and he smote or killed the Egyptian. Here's why. Verse 25. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they didn't understand it. Maybe you're sitting there tonight and you're thinking, well, I'm not so glad I came tonight. You don't understand. Well, I've already blown it. My kids are X amount of age or years old already, and I've failed. I haven't, I haven't even started doing this, or I, I haven't done a good a job, a good job of doing this. You haven't failed. Listen, my father didn't give his life to Christ until I was twelve, and while my mother knew the Lord when I was born, and she taught us about the Lord when we were young, my parents didn't really start working together on trying to raise us in the Lord until I was thirteen years old. And you know, as a teenager, I remember, I remember my mom listening to Oliver B. Green, and. John MacArthur and J. Vernon McGee, Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, other Bible teachers. I remember that. I remember seeing her open Bible and a notepad on the dining room table on most days. And I thought to myself, I need to do with that. I need to study like that. I remember seeing my dad read his Bible on the couch and then talking to us about all the new crazy things he'd learned. You know, he'd be like, oh, I've never seen this before. And we'd be like, what? You know, but he was, the excitement that he had about the Bible, I thought, I, I want to be excited like that. I remember him making us sit at the table after dinner as he read the Bible to a bunch of kids who wanted to get up and play video games before bedtime. 
He'd be there, you know, slouching in your chair, you know, and you get lower and lower as, you know, he's reading on and on, you know, and, you know, trying to communicate your displeasure at how long this is going. Do you realize you are cutting into John Madden 2000 time? You know, whatever. I was, I was married by then, but, you know, you know what I mean. But he did it. I remember talking all the time about what our pastor taught or what we learned in Sunday school class or in youth group. And all those things taught me that the Bible and my faith were important. None of us can change the past, but we can change the present. Don't let what I've said today condemn you. Start from scratch today. Don't look around you. Don't look around you at all the mess that's around you. Don't look inside and see all the problems and all your failures, but look up. Because God has an amazing way of restoring what the locust has eaten. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Lord, you've been really, really good to me. And to many of us in this room, you've been so good to us. We could have been born somewhere that didn't have access to Bibles, Lord. And we pray for places like that, Lord, that you would, you would bring access of your word and your truth to those people. Lord, you've been very good to us in the country we live in, that we have freedom to study your word, to, to come to church and to gather and to learn your word. Lord, many people don't have that. And we pray for people who live in places like the Middle East and North Africa and, and, and other places, Lord, where they, they can't do this easily. They can't do this without complication or open celebration and open study. Lord, we thank you for how good and gracious you've been to us to give us exposure to your truth. Lord, we don't want to forget you when we see the circumstances around us that are so negative. We don't want to forget you when we see oppressive government and overreaching government, Lord. We don't want to lose heart when we look at our own failures or just even the impossibility. How do you take on, you know, a culture that seems so opposed to you? Lord, we make a choice right now to look up, to see you, the omnipotent God who called us before the foundation of the world. You have a plan for our our lives and you love us deeply. So Lord, help us not to be ashamed of the gospel, but like Amram and Jochebed, to do the right thing, to speak the right things, to live the right way, to honor you. And Lord, if we are parents, to instill in them with the time that it takes to do so, these precious truths in your word. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, teach us to die to ourselves and to give up our time to pour into our kids. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Raising children in God's word is the best legacy any parent could leave. There comes a point in every child's life where they must choose for themselves to follow the Lord, but it is our job to teach them who God is and all that he has done for us, that he loves us, and died for us to know Him in genuine relationship. It is never too late or too early to teach them who God is. But if you have questions or would like prayer concerning this or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. 
Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.